September 14, 1994, started off as a very quiet night in Zimbabwe. But suddenly, without warning, a great explosion was heard and felt all over the country. For a range of over a hundred miles, windows rattled and doors shook. As to be expected, many left the comforts of their home and dared to look outside to see what exactly had happened. But all was still, and it seemed undisturbed, so they went back to bed. But one woman was not easily satisfied that nothing had taken place. Cynthia Hind got into her car and drove around the capital of Ferrere, looking for the source of the sound. But she found nothing. Returning home, however, to find her phone had been ringing relentlessly. As she was a UFO investigator from MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, the local news claimed it was nothing more than a sonic boom caused by a meteor shower. But Cynthia, she wasn't as sure. Citizens near Lake Coribia described unexplained lights in the sky that same week, lights in a row that moved erratically at different speeds and in different directions. Meteors don't do that. Cynthia suspected there was more to this story, and two days later she would be proven correct. Join us tonight as we explore the unknown and unravel one of the best documented UFO cases to date, the aerial school in Zimbabwe. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So this has been called the most remarkable close encounter of the third kind of the 90s. It is one of the largest mass UFO sightings ever recorded. Over 62 school children witnessed something on the 16th of September, 1994, just outside of Rua, Zimbabwe. Now, a little background, because I don't know if Eric did this. Rua is a small agricultural center located about 14 miles southeast of the capital of Harare. At the time, it was not a town but simply a local place name, described as little more than a crossroads in an agricultural region. And it is there that you would find the Aerial School, which was an expensive private school. By the way, not named after the Little Mermaid. Not after the Little Mermaid. Actually named after the Archangel. Now, most of the students were from wealthy white families in the area, but there was a variety of people, different backgrounds, different upbringings. So you had a a lot of things going on. Now, as Eric said, a couple of days beforehand, there had been a number of UFO sightings throughout Southern Africa. There had been numerous reports of a bright fireball passing through the night sky. Many people had called in to, to Cynthia Hine and to the local radio station to describe what they had seen. Although some witnesses interpreted the fireball as a comet or a meteor, it did result in a wave of UFO mania in Zimbabwe at the time. So the aerial incident itself occurred about 10 a.m. on September 16, 1994 would otherwise seem to have been a normal day by all intents and purposes. The students were outside on a mid-morning break, I'm assuming what we'd call a recess, recess. here in America. Yep, they're on the playground. The adult faculty of the school were inside having a meeting. There was one adult outside with the children. There were about 62 students outside during break, scattered between the ages of 6 and 12. So these were younger kids. When the students claimed to have seen a silvery disc descend from the sky, 
and land on a hill in a nearby field just outside of where the children were allowed to go. This would have been off the school grounds. Now, the students ran to the edge of school grounds to get a better look. And actually, before the UFO was sighted, or whatever you want to call this, this UAP, UAP <laughs> flying saucer disc, there was a loud buzzing noise that was heard from nearby. Uh, they thought it was coming first from the trees, but then it seemed to kind of surround them. Well, it's my understanding there were power lines in the area. Yes. That ran very close. So and they, they thought it thought could it have that. been the power lines. But then it suddenly just stopped, which was odd, obviously, if it was power lines. But then it started back up again a few moments louder than ever. And then at that point, you know, they described it was almost like when it stopped and it started again and got loud, whatever this was appeared. The students ran over to the edge of the school grounds to get a better look at what was going on. Of course, some of the students ran away. They were, they were scared. These were little kids. They expected. Now, what they saw was, was this silvery craft, saucer shape, your kind of typical UFO. And they said that they saw a small creature about three foot tall walking around on top of the craft while another creature, very similar, came down to, to check out the children. Now, they described the, the creatures being short, again, about three foot tall, was wearing a shiny, black, very tight-fitting suit. They described it like a scuba diver suit. Yes. So you can imagine, you know, that kind of outfit. They said he was human-like, but he had waxy skin, a slip for a mouth, and barely any ears. And the children all said that he had big eyes like rugby balls. So I'm assuming that and the head was out shape. of proportion yeah. large as well. I mean, he's very, very typical of your, your standard alien. Mm -hmm. The creature seemed to communicate with the children without saying any word, telling them about the state of our world, what humanity was doing to the planet, the destruction we were causing. And, but not every child heard the same message. Some of the children were traumatized by the experience. Others were excited. The youngest children being the most traumatized supposedly because they were the closest to the front. I mean, all the little kids got in front, the taller kids in the back, you know, so they could all see. Now, this entire experience lasted about 15 minutes. And then, at that point, after it was all over, the children all went screaming back to their teachers. They told the teachers what they had seen, but the teachers kind of dismissed it, you know, they, them being the adults. These are kids. They're making it up, whatever. Uh, they continued on with the normal school day after that. Now, when the kids returned home, they told their parents what had happened, and many parents came to the school the next day, very concerned, <laughs> wanting to know what was going on. They just, they wanted to discuss this. They got with the faculty, you know, like, hey, what, what's going on with our kids? What are they, what are they telling all these crazy stories for? Uh, with the parents and others that took an interest in the story getting involved, the head teacher of the school asked the children to draw what they had seen. And they all drew roughly the same drawings. Now, if you take a minute to look online, search this, this particular incident, you'll find a lot of these drawings online. And yeah, they're remarkably similar. They, they do show a, a little person in, in a black suit with weird features. A, there's a obviously silvery, some minor you know, differences, but for the yeah. most part, they're drawing the same yeah. thing. A, a disc-shaped craft. But all the drawings, like I said, depicted a silvery classic UFO-type craft with the children drawing alien figures nearby. One child stated, quote, It looked like it was glinting in the trees. It looked like a disc, like a round disc. And another said, I saw something silver on the ground amongst the trees and a person in black. Now, the sighting was reported to ZBC Radio, and the BBC correspondent in the area from Zimbabwe, Tim Leach, visited the school on September 19th. Now, he went there and he filmed interviews with students and staff, and after conducting interviews with the children, he was left shaken by what he had heard. He said, and I quote, I could handle war zones, but I could not handle this. Now, Cynthia Hine, the, the local UFO researcher, she visited the school the next day on the 20th in 1994. And she interviewed some of the children and examined their drawings. And she reported that the children all told her basically the same story. 
She also noted, though, that, that all the children were of diverse backgrounds. Some were, you know, wealthy white families, some poorer families. Some had really been raised, you know, Christian. Some had been raised with traditional African. A true melting pot. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of people. They all described it in roughly the same way. But typically, the fam- they were all wealthy, though. Ariel School apparently had very high tuition costs. So, But they all described the features of the figures and the UFOs similarly, despite interpreting different ways based on their upbringing. I guess some of the kids thought they were uh, what they call a tokolosh, which is sort of a local creature. Yes. Some described them as a type of goblin. They all described roughly the same thing, but they translated it to their, their upbringing, their, their worldview. Later in November, Harvard University professor of psychiatry John Mack had heard about this story, and he decided he wanted to go investigate this. Now, in the 90s, Mack had investigated UFO sightings, and he had taken particular interest in the alien abduction phenomenon. In May of 94, the dean of Harvard Medical School, a Daniel C. Tostason, appointed a committee of peers to confidentially review Mack's work. Uh, his clinical care and his investigation of the people he was talking to who had shared their alien encounters with him. The issue they had, of course, was that they felt that Mac had been communicating with these people and that he believed their experiences may have been real. And obviously in, in educated intellectual circles that had, yeah, I was going to say, some right, especially coming from Harvard yeah. to have a, uh, a teacher, a scholar from there give credibility to yeah. this, especially in the nineties. That was kind of a slam in their face. They didn't like that. After 14 months, which would be after his investigation of the aerial incident, Harvard did issue a statement saying that the dean had, quote, reaffirmed Dr. Mack's academic freedom to study what he wishes and to state his opinions without impediment. So they never really supported what he was doing. They so just said he, he was allowed to do it. He didn't do anything yeah, he wrong. he wasn't doing anything wrong. So according to the interviews of Hind, Leach, and Mack, you know, we're going to kind of restate with a little more detail here, 62 children between the ages of 6 and 12 said that they had seen at least one UFO. Dozens more children who were present stated that they had not seen any UFO or anything unusual. Again, remember, I said some children ran. Mm -hmm. Some children went to see what was going on. The basic details of the sightings were very consistent between the children, although not all of the details stayed the same. But what everybody agreed on, one or more silver objects, usually described as discs, appeared out of the sky. They then floated down to a field of brush and small trees just outside school property, between one and four creatures with big eyes and dressed all in black, exited the craft and approached the children. At this point, many of the children ran, but some, mostly older students, stayed and watched the creatures. Now, according to Max interviews, the creature or creatures then telepathically communicated to the children an environmental message before returning to the craft and flying away. According to Dunning, the telepathic message aspect of the story was not included in Heinz or Leach's reports, only Max. Although Hein later reported it, you know, in, in her own research. In Max interviews, one fifth grader tells how he was warned, quote, about something that's going to happen and pollution mustn't be. An 11-year-old girl told Mac, I think they want people to know that we're actually making harm on this world and we mustn't get too technology. Her words, you know, of course. Right. She's a kid. One child said that he was told that the world would end because we were not taking care of our planet. The children were all adamant that they had not seen a plane. And Hein noted that the different cultural backgrounds of the children gave rise to different interpretations of what they'd seen, like I said earlier. So they all kind of filtered it through their own lens, and not all of them believed that they were extraterrestrials. Like I said, some of them believed they were tokoloshes, which were creatures from Shona and Indebele folklore. So, like I said, they kind of filtered it through their own lens, but that they all agreed what they saw and, and described them very similarly. I'd like to jump in here with a little bit of the first-hand accounts from the kids before we 
we take this too far. You know, as Bill mentioned, some of the older kids, it seemed, kind of stayed and they were clutching the fence. Now, I saw video footage and it looked like there was a chain link fence that was pretty well around the, the playground area that separated these creatures, these beings, from the children. One of the older, a young girl named Selma, stated that later she wanted to run with her younger siblings to run away and to help comfort them. But when she had made eye contact with the being, she could not move. Try as she may, she could not pull herself away from the fence. Yeah, I had, I had seen elsewhere where they, they almost talked about being in, in a near trance-like yes. state. Yes, going to get into that. She said there was something about those large black eyes that just kept staring at her and that just froze her in, in place. Then she uncontrollably took a step even closer to the fence. And in doing so, one of those alien beings then took a step closer to her, still maintaining that eye contact. She said she felt as if it was probing her mind, looking into her thoughts, which I thought was very peculiar for a young girl to use those words. Another child, 12 years old, her name was Lysel, said that she also felt paralyzed in place, but went on to say she was frozen in time as if everything else was still happening, but she and the aliens were in a different time. She said there was this loud ringing in her ears as images like a movie screen flashed before her eyes. Things evil and things grim, like the destruction of cities and people dying, and then an image of millions of trees burnt to cinders, and then oceans literally boiling. Another little girl, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed child, grabbed Liesel's hand next to her when she could tell that her friend was uncomfortable. In doing so, Emma herself, the blonde-haired girl, said that she also could see the same images that her friend Liesel was seeing, and later they talked about this. All of that flashed before their eyes, both of them as well now. She saw technology she did not understand, but sensed it was bad. She saw burning bodies lying in the streets of a large city, and she became terrified. She also said she could not leave or run, not because she was held in place, but rather like she was floating in space, and there was nothing to push off of or to go to or from, just suspended there. Emily, our fifth grader, who was also nearby, stated she was just as fearful, like all the oxygen in the air was being sucked out of the direct area, and she simply could not even breathe. She had to stop and tell herself to focus, just stop and breathe, stop and breathe. So she did not have the time to attempt to even run. She was aware of the other children around her, but they seemed so far away from her. The only sound she could hear was the blood pumping in her ears and that of her own heartbeat. She also wanted to flee, but couldn't pull herself away from those big, black, staring eyes. Selma, the first girl who had taken the step closer to the fence, and the alien, who had also taken a step towards her, once again said she was asked to come forward, but the fence separated the two. She then heard a message from the alien, but without words, that they wanted her to come with them. It seemed to the children only a few minutes had passed while all of this was happening, but others stated it was a good 15 minutes of time. So we have, at least to some degree, a little bit of lost time, as often is associated with alien encounters. Then the school bell rang, indicating recess or playtime was over. And in this occurrence, the aliens looked away towards the noise at the school, which broke this seemingly trance with the children at the fence. The children then were all freed from whatever it seemed to hold them in place, and reality crashed into their minds. They turned and ran screaming towards the school. 
They entered the building babbling and screaming to anyone who would possibly listen to their story. In a scene with many other younger children already huddled inside the hallways crying, some in the fetal position. The teachers came out of their meeting and found the state of chaos. When the children started to calm down and explain what had happened, obviously the teachers ran out into the yard, but they were too late. There was nothing to be seen there. As Bill had said, all in total there were 62 students that proclaimed to some degree to see some form of what I'm going to call an alien craft event that took place there in Zimbabwe at the aerial school. Now I will say the headmaster of the school, Colin Mackey, He was the one that actually asked the children to draw the object they saw literally that day, which Bill had alluded to. And this was key crucial in the coming weeks and months as the investigation continued. Because, I mean, obviously the time to do something is is strike when the iron's hot, so to speak. To get the children to sit down and draw and tell their stories of what happened that day while it was still fresh in mind was, was brilliant. It also didn't allow the children a lot of time to talk and possibly, as some doubters would say, work their stories yeah. in. So that was, that was key. Going back to Cynthia Hind, the UFO investigator. In the days after the event, Cynthia had, had reached out within her circle of contacts and was just asking what other people thought, what other people could have seen. Professor Ewan Nesbitt, who worked at the Greenwich Observatory in London, told her a Russian satellite had entered the Earth's atmosphere. As the satellite burned up, it caused strange lights in the sky. Now that is the the accepted explanation for the fireball. And they're saying a lot of of what happened, a lot of the UFO sightings in the area at the time. But I believe these sightings went back for two or three days. It wasn't all at once. It was multiple days leading up to this event. would crash all in. That's going to happen all at once. One event. Yeah, absolutely. So, This we know. They did find actually within a 40-mile range of the location of the school chunks of the Russian satellite that was identified. So, yeah, I think maybe that explains some of that uh, two nights before's event. But it doesn't explain little people walking around and flying disks, landing, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Now, you had talked about John Mack arriving on the scene. You know, and as you mentioned, he's a psychologist specializing in child psychology. He took a lot of ridicule. As we mentioned, Harvard, his counterparts basically even lashed out at him. Well, he had become very interested in the abduction phenomenon. And and like I said, he had become convinced that these people were actually experiencing something. He definitely did not believe it was a hoax or that it was staged. He went on record and he said, number one, you know, if it would be possible for 62 students— children especially, to get together and stage that form of a story from first to 12th grade, it would be a miracle. Number two, assuming somehow that it was possible, you would expect there to be very a limited amount of information that was told just over and over and over repeatedly. As you said, people relayed the story differently on their backgrounds. You know, it wasn't the same key words yeah. that were used. Number three, there was a handful of common things that were agreed upon by the children, but almost more importantly, he said, was the small inconsistent similarities. The number of beings, for example, the explanation of the ship landing. Some said that they saw a streak you know, coming across the sky that stopped, and then the spinning disc appeared, and then it landed. Others just said they saw the, the disc land. You know, there was the children talking about their different degrees of paralyzation, 
where one couldn't breathe, one was like frozen, one was like in a different time, unable to flee from that stare of, of the being. You know, yet, of course, not only the children, but anyone as part of a large conspiracy might elaborate on details. This didn't feel the same as that. So that's why he said this is not a hoax. These kids truly believe they saw something, and I believe they did. He also noted that while he was interviewing several of the kids, now again, this was month or months later, they had true difficulty expressing in words. Uh, some of them broke down in tears still. They didn't have words to explain what they went through. They could barely speak of it. Some of them refused to even talk about it because it still horrified them so much. He said especially seemed disturbed about the scenes that the children said with the being shared about the destruction of mankind. And why in the world would kids come up with this? You know, unfortunately, the scariest thing that he was able to deem from the children's stories that scared them the most was there was no answers on how to stop or change the destruction that they had shared with the kids. Just this kind of doom and gloom message that this is your future. You know, we're sharing it with you. The aerial school UFO incident quickly became one of the most famous UFO cases in Africa. And really, most UFO sightings had been a more Western phenomenon at that point. So there's also one of the first that came from areas that weren't considered part of the West, which, you know, you had UFO sightings in England and whatnot. I don't know how Africa is any less Western than, than England, you know, but that's just the way it was termed in, in, in the stuff that I read. Now, on a June 2021 episode of BBC's Witness History, described the event as one of the most significant events in UFO history, as I touched on earlier. And ufologists continue to cite the case as providing compelling evidence of extraterrestrial visits to Earth. Again, 60-plus witnesses, you know, broad daylight, they all basically describe the same thing. On a December 2020 episode of the Skeptoid podcast, Brian Dunning covered the aerial UFO incident. And he noted that some of the children in the school reported that they had not seen anything unusual that day. Obviously, with a name like Skeptoid, it's kind of his, <laughs> his, his objective to kind of pick it apart. And he challenged the often repeated statement that as rural school children in Zimbabwe, the witnesses would not have had exposure to modern media and so would not have been familiar with the concept of UFOs and alien visitors. That's sort of the argument a lot of people use, like, oh, they're from the middle of nowhere in Africa. They've never heard of UFOs. But remember, in the days leading up to the event, there was a big UFO flap, if you will. So a lot of people were talking about UFOs. They were documented. And in some cases, you know, these were, these were families of means. They had money. So these people had exposure to more, you they, know, TV They would have had TV, media. radio, and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. He also criticized the interview techniques of Hind and Mack, specifically noting that Hind interviewed the children in groups of four to six instead of individually. So this allowed the children to each listen in on the other stories and so kind they of might feed off one another. Yeah, the the they might cross contaminate, if you will, pick a detail from that one. Oh yeah, yeah, I saw that too. Memory is fallible, and a lot of times you can implant a memory in somebody by saying, "Well, did you?" You know, you can ask questions or whatever. But especially in a group setting where you know you hear somebody else tell a story, and and then that detail kind of clicks, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I remember seeing that too." Even if you didn't, just because. Uh, and again, human nature. Big group of kids, and kids especially. Yeah. Now, Mac didn't really interview the children until like two months later. And so Dunning said that, one, the children had had time to kind of corroborate their stories, get together, make sure all the details matched if they were pulling off a hoax, which, again, that's up in the air. A lot of people don't believe they were. But also that Mac was a known environmentalist. Yes. They, they say that maybe he prompted or suggested 
the message to the children when he was talking to them. Maybe ask some leading questions. Well, there was even some specialists that went back through over some of those interviews. And while the people did describe flashes and images, there really did not seem to be any environmentalist message until after Mac interviewed them. Well, and a lot of people note that 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 message in the telepathic communication is missing from Heinz reports. She doesn't document that at all. So Now, others could say, well, these, these are children. They didn't necessarily have the terminology or words to use Could until be. after Max. So you could argue either well, side. And, and if they were given images instead of words, yeah, like you said, maybe they couldn't articulate what yeah. they saw. Or, and maybe he interpreted it. Maybe the, maybe the aliens were implanting the idea of nuclear holocaust. And Mac interpreted it the way he wanted to take it. Supposedly, Mac did the same thing by using the word telepathic. That word didn't show up anywhere until after he was there. But again, they're children. Are they going to know the word telepathic? I know some adults that don't know what telepathic means. So some previously unseen photos came to light as recently as 2022. These photos claim to show the imprints in the field where the craft had landed. And they were taken at the time by Gunther Hofer. And these pictures are online. They're out there to be seen. So if you want to look them up, they're out there. He was the first one on the scene to actually investigate and document the incident. And the pictures do show two oval-shaped impressions in the grass. One is larger than the other. Then in the pictures, I think Gunther had another person with him. He's in the pictures kind of standing. And it's a pretty good-sized area. I'd say, you know, it, it, it's bigger than a human would be. So let's say 7, 8, 9, 10 feet. You know, okay. it's, it's a good-sized depression. Maybe the size of a car. Yeah, maybe maybe, maybe not quite that big. Small yeah, car. small car, let's, let's say. And they, these pictures were taken in the area where the children said the UFO had landed. It also showed wedge-shaped impressions in the soil. Now, the reason this is so notable is that this is Africa. This is not jungle Africa. This is dry, deserty Africa. Rock soil. Rock hard soil in which there were these wedge-shaped depressions, which I would assume would be from the landing Landing gear gear impressions, yeah. While Hofer was talking to the children, they told him that they had also seen UFOs the day before the encounter that they documented, which they described as being cigar-shaped, which is another classic UFO shape. Absolutely. They had seen these UFOs over the course of a couple days, and this goes along with people seeing UFOs in the days leading up to this encounter. Now, many of the children are still being impacted today as adults. Many of them suffer from PTSD, in part due to the experience, but also from the ridicule and having people in their lives not believing them in the time since then. Uh, one student in particular was interviewed, and I, I, found, I found it kind of heartbreaking, but she said it was, it was hard to have all these people in your life that are supposed to be your support network, family, friends, trusted adults, teachers, and they're supposed to be your support network and have them not believe you or support you when you come forward to tell this story. That would suck. That that would be rough. And again, that kind of goes to the previous episode where we talked about the UFO encounters by pilots and, and military, where there's no real way for people to report these things without being ridiculed. And these were children. And and I'm I'm sure they, they did receive a lot of flack. You know, their, their own families, like a lot of them were like, their parents would tell them not to talk about it. People will make fun of you. The families didn't want to be made fun of. Again, these are wealthy families. I'm yep. assuming the influential. They don't want somebody out there saying, oh, their kid's talking about UFOs. Well, yeah, you know? your kid was one of the ones that had a UFO visit. Yeah. They tried to tell them to forget about it. They told them they were just pretending. They told them it was imaginary. Doing it for attention. Yeah. Now, there is a documentary, I believe, being made. It's either being made or it's already made. I, I don't remember for sure. 
But according to the documentary, the UFO was tracked on radar multiple times in the days before the encounter, first traveling across the Atlantic being picked up by Mexican radar, later by commercial operators from Johannesburg, South Africa, eventually being tracked to a location near the Zimbabwean border with Botswana. So there is other There's some proof there. evidence to help support that there was a UFO being detected in the area. And besides the Russian satellite. We yeah. had a lot of things going on there. Yeah, there was a lot going on all at once. Well, I got some other tidbits that I thought was kind of worth mentioning. Some of them we've touched upon, but I'll elaborate a little bit more. Events continued to happen before as well as after the event there at the aerial school. There are reports of many strange flying lights. There's another of a UFO that seemed to stall vehicles on a road that was nearby and electronics as it flew over, which we hear this a lot with with alien technology. Many locals chalked it up to, as I believe Bill had mentioned, uh, mischievous spirits. Uh, One is the uh, Shona Teka Laka, the mythological dark-skinned dwarvish humanoid with large head and small ears. Is it not weird that so many cultures have very similar stories of little people with big heads? I, that's the exact kind of stuff we talk about here on the podcast. Isn't it a coincidence? (laughs) Other tribal shamans in the area stated that there are many temples and shrines that lay in the area that they believe could be summoning the crafts or aliens from outer space. They claim similar events have been occurring for hundreds of years. Another school, the Pier House School, only some 23 miles away, a few days prior to the aerial school event, had their own encounter with a strange, bright, illuminated light flying and hovering in the sky with 20 students that were witness to that flying very low to the ground as if trying to land. During the time frame, there were many electrical malfunctions that was experienced, lights going off and on, electricity in, in general. In the uh, incident at the aerial school, it's worth mentioning there were some other possible issues with eyewitnesses. You know, number one, one of the child stated that they, they had this buzzing, many of them reported hearing. But one student came forward and he said, no, it, it wasn't a buzzing. It was flute music. That was kind of way out in left field, I thought. Number two, a, a couple of the children stated the metallic silver disc craft was actually black with green stripes. Still a third child identified it as, no, no, it was red in color, entirely red. Number three, not all children on the playground that day reported seeing or hearing anything at all. But again, it's a large playground area. Not everybody is probably going to witness that. And some may have just ran fleeing when they saw other children running and fleeing. Number four, some students reported the beans were fat. Some say they were slender. Some said they had black suits covering their heads. Another one said, no, they had long, straggly hair, which kind of goes back to the Shona Teklosha, the, the dark-skinned. He has very long, black, straggly hair. So there, there were some inconsistencies there. Well, and, and like I said, they sort of filtered it through their own prism, their own experiences. So it's possible. What they could relate to. Again, you know, memory being what it is, maybe no. they, they kind of added details. We've both talked about Dr. Mack a little bit in his involvement and, you know, some of the ridicule and the backlash from Harvard, uh, the mention of telepathically communicating where the word telepathic wasn't used before that, the whole environmentalist, you know, all of that. But after that was said and done, of course, you know, Harvard said he can investigate or do what he wants to do. You know, it's, it's still a free country. Um, he has done nothing wrong. So, while the outcome was positive, Dr. Mack's reputation never really seemed to bounce back. He continued to investigate UFO phenomenon for another 10 years, 
In September of 2004, he was in London actually giving a lecture on the eve of which he was walking home with friends when he was struck by an automobile and killed by a drunk driver. Now, while that is absolutely horrible, many believe it was something more sinister at play, something to shut Dr. Mack up once and for all. Now, let me take that a step further. At the time, he was uh, one of the most famous researchers on all UFO phenomenon, being invited onto almost every popular news talk show of the day, including Oprah Winfrey and the Larry King live show. Some believe his high visibility had put him in jeopardy. One more little tidbit on that. While there's no evidence of foul play, it is interesting there were also three other John Max killed in London on that same day. Is that name that common? No matter who you are, where you're coming from in your belief, that, folks, is one heck of a coincidence. When you say killed, I mean, I'm assuming they didn't die of natural they causes. They did not die of natural causes. Some were described as accidents. I think one gentleman fell to his death. Wow. Then we have Cynthia Hind, uh, the MUFON uh, UFO Network representative. Now, let me state, that is not one of those, and I don't mean this to sound bad, but not a crackpot internet meme. Quite the contrary. MUFON is probably the most sincere and well-documented organizations of UFO oh, they, of all times. They are very serious in their research. They, again, it, it's, it's not just some folks working out of a basement. They are organized. They take it seriously. They do research. They take the time to listen. This is, yeah, it's not just something a bunch of friends do on the weekend. Yeah. They, they're, they're. It's a, not like a, a Facebook post, you know, yeah, for, community. for all that they're doing, they're as legit an investigative group as you can be. So they have actually a 95% success rate in investigating and closing reports in a respectful sense. Now, what I mean by that is they're the first to say, oh, yeah, this is not alien. This is scientifically this or yeah. that or if they can figure out what it actually is they're going to own it they're they're not out there they're not out there looking to prove ufos they're looking out there to investigate the claims so if it turns out that it's a swamp gas or ball lightning or yeah whatever they're going to own that but bill guess what is still open on their files i'm going to assume the aerial case absolutely still open to this day so once again, you know, here we are on the home stretch of another UFO phenomenon. It's misunderstood, unknown, full of surprises. We, of course, we don't have all the answers, as quite honestly. I'm not sure any of us possess the full wisdom and intelligence to comprehend everything about it, possibly. So we're going to leave it to our listeners to decide. You know, hey, we're the storytellers. We present the cases and stories to you, and you decide what you want to believe. All right, Bill, it's time for headlines. What you got? So mine is from Business Insider Africa, dated June 12th, 2023. And this, this little tidbit of news made its rounds not that long ago, especially if you're into UFOs and aliens. But the headline is, Body Cam Recording Catches Cops Investigating Potential UFO Crash. Oh, yes. Hey, if those nine-foot beans come back, don't call us, all right? By Chris K. So the motto of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department is, Partners with the Community. Unless you're looking for aliens, apparently. <laughs> so the American Meteor Society received 21 reports of a fireball streaking across the southwest just before midnight on April 30th. This included everything from reports given by a late-night cyclist in northeast Utah to a doorbell camera video from Reno, Nevada. 
And soon after, a Las Vegas man called 911. He reported that something resembling a saucer had crashed in his backyard. Backyard. Quote, I swear to God, this is not a joke. This is actually, we're terrified. The caller went on to describe the vehicles to occupants. His description was documented in the dispatcher's notes from the call. This is kind of shorthand. Two times, subjects are 10 to 11 feet tall, muscular, green slash tan, colored skin, neon eyes, naked. That's the notes, according to the 911 dispatcher. That's 10 to 11 foot tall, naked people running around in my backyard. Green skin. Green skin. Several of the man's family members corroborated his account on the phone, and 911 dispatched two police officers to the scene. In footage obtained by KLAS, a CBS affiliate in the area, one of the officers is heard to say, quote, I'm so nervous right now. I have butterflies, bro. Saw a shooting star, and now these people say there's aliens in their backyard, which I've seen the video. I've seen that. Yes, yes. After the police arrive at the home, they can be seen talking to witnesses, none of whom seem to be under the influence. What did you see, one officer asks. It was a big creature, a witness replies. A big creature, the officer continues. Yeah, more than 10 feet tall, the witness answers. Now, body cam video shows one officer entering the backyard to investigate, but this is blocked out due to privacy laws. So, and, and, and I have you seen can't that. You can see in they the backyard, yeah. An officer tells one of the witnesses, you guys seem like legit scared, so I don't blame you. He then asks a passenger in a passing car, hey, this might sound like a really dumb question, but did you guys see anything fall out of the sky? I would normally discount it as probably not real, but however, seeing as one of my partners said they saw it too, the only reason I'm asking is to investigate. So while sources say it's likely that something did crash into the yard, exactly what made the circular imprints that can be seen by drone footage is unknown. So the family said officials returned to the home to investigate for several days, but reports state that the Las Vegas Metro Police Department has since closed the case and added that uh, prank calls in Nevada have serious consequences. So I think we know their stance on the issue. Yeah. Perhaps that's why, as he was leaving the scene of this potential first contact situation, one of the responding officers can be heard telling the family, hey, if those nine-foot beings come back, don't call us, all right? Yeah. Maybe they should have called Mulder and Scully. I don't want to take credit for that joke. That was in the original <sighs> article. I'm just thinking, nine to ten foot tall, there's two beans. The size of the craft that would crash into your backyard? How big a backyard they got in Vegas? There's pretty confined space, you know? And, and again, if you're into UFOs and stuff, you might have seen this. I know I had seen clips of the video and whatnot before. One of those things that I wrote down is like, hey, maybe an episode, but I didn't feel there was really enough to this story, which is the one family. But yeah, I've seen the video of the cops walking and they, the cops seem pretty nervous. Yeah. Like they're, they're, they're buying I, it. I, I got to give a shout out here to one of our listeners and a good friend of mine, Brian G. Brian G. Hope you're listening. You catch this. I was in Virginia. Um, this was on our trip to the East coast here, not too long ago. And Brian G, my good friend, he, he texts me and he's like, dude. Have you seen this? <laughs> There's a UFO crash in Vegas. You've got to, and I, I hadn't, I, we'd been out, you know, we're on vacation. Yeah. We're out spending time with family. I've, I've kind of pulled away from the stuff I normally am at. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he goes on, I mean, he's texting up storm and he's like, you can just go on the internet. You can go anywhere. It is. Ev and it was, Oh, it was. Yeah. So of course that night I'm over there on the TV and, and downstairs where we stay in the basement and, watching watch a tv and my wife comes over and it's like what are you watching? and i said this is what brian g was telling me about man there's a ufo that crashed and we watched that exact footage you know the cops showing up don't call us again if they show up <laughs> and, you know the whole thing but uh, shout out to brian g because he actually 
made me first aware of this. I guess I had missed it by at least 24 hours, maybe 48 hours. I am on Reddit like every day. And so, of course, I follow subreddits about UFOs and the unexplained. And and yeah, they, they pop that in there. And I immediately watch the videos on YouTube and whatnot. It, it's pretty interesting. Now, some people say that there are things on the video that clearly are aliens. And then somebody, like one of them, they're like, no, that was the gas tank on the back of a propane-powered you know forklift or whatever there were some stretches i saw one video where it was like the the gate to the backyard was opening up and they freeze framed it and they were zooming in like where the hinge was if you look closely you can see the aliens fingers grasping the side of the fence and it's like it's, whoa whoa it's whoa. body cam footage it's not hd video yeah, or anything yeah, so. yeah. and if you look real you can see his head kind of pull back behind the post and it's like okay whatever all right my headlines is i wanted to kind of touch base on other school ufo sightings uh, we have one in the Westall School sighting, which took place on April 6th of 1966, Melbourne, Australia. At approximately 11 a.m., students and a teacher from uh, Westall High School, now uh, Westall Secondary College, reported seeing a flying object described as gray or silver green tent saucer flying with a purple hue about twice the size of a normal automobile. Now, according to students, the object was descending uh, it flew over the high school and disappeared behind some trees. Approximately 20 minutes later, the object reappeared, climbed at great speeds, and departed towards the northwest. Some described the object as being pursued by five unidentified crafts. Locals have chalked this up to a weather balloon. Gotta love the weather balloon story. Although over 200 students, a teacher, and many locals reported seeing the same ordeal, because this took place again over a period of about 30 minutes. The teacher recently came forward, just a few years back, claiming he had been confronted by military officials who threatened to have him fired if he pushed the matter, claiming that they would say he was found drunken under the influence to believe wow. such a thing and the school would surely end his job and tenure. Now, oddly, military personnel came forward to uh, interview, or I should say interrogate, hundreds of the eyewitnesses' accounts, and many said after the, the interviews, they were basically all told, no, this is what you saw. I don't care what you're telling me. This is what you saw. They, you know, they took multiple soil samples. Uh, this is documented at the landing site. Now, to me, that doesn't sound like a weather balloon. Why would you threaten so many people, threaten a teacher, take soil samples if it's a weather balloon? Hmm. Weather balloons don't typically land and take off. So We have another one at Crestview Elementary School in Opalaca, Florida. This was April 7th, 1967. Again, approximately 10 a.m., about the same time in the morning. Students saw multiple UFOs coming through the clouds and hovering above a nearby tree line. Students and teachers heard a strange whistling noise from overhead. Now, looking up, they saw four strange saucers flying in a diamond-shaped formation. They then disappeared to reappear again 20 minutes later, very similar to the last story. This time, they were flying in a different direction. Now, the sound they made was so loud, it drowned out the sound of the teachers trying to tell the children to get inside. The children fled anyhow in fear from the playground area and back inside the school building. The UFO then again dematerialized and reappeared a third time, which then, all in unison, flipped on their sides and darted away at unbelievable speeds. 
This event was witnessed by well over 150 people. Lastly, nine years later, this is in 1976, Broadhaven Primary School in Wales, England area, a handful of students and teachers reported a silver disc hovering above the school. They watched the object for several minutes before it darted away. But later that same day, it returned, this time witnessed by even more people. It hovered again for a short period of time and then again darted away. The British military stated it was due to a a meteorological anomaly, or a weather event. But years later, in 2017, documents were found that proved not only was the government taking the sightings very serious, as a matter of fact, it had been firsthand witnessed by some military personnel, as well as pilots in the area, as well as air traffic control. So here again, we have the government, this time the British government, suppressing, hiding actual facts that were well documented. Once again, the public is told what to believe, and in many cases, it was a meteor shower. Or in other cases, it was an air balloon. Or more recently, it's Elon Musk satellites. (laughs) Well, at least I guess they have upgraded from air balloon to something more modern. We hope that you've enjoyed yet another installment of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. We love and appreciate each and every one of you. Thanks for listening. Hey, real quick, call to action. I think Eric would agree. We'd like to grow this Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Absolutely. If you could, if you're listening on Apple, if you would go and give us a review and, and rate us. Uh, if you have some feedback, that's fine too. Uh, whatever, whatever platform you're listening, follow us, rate us, give us some reviews. That helps get some recognition and gets our name out there. We do have a Facebook page, Nightmares on the Lost Highway. You can easily find us if you want to communicate with us, if you want to share some uh, possibilities for future podcasts with us. You know, reach out. We want to talk with you guys. By getting the children to all draw these pictures and to give their recognition a recognition of and when Hofer was talking, uh, talking, he was token, token with the token. That's <laughs> not okay. They had visions, which they described as being cigar, uh, cigar. My God, cigar. What did you see? One creature at one creature. One asked. creature asked. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms. Uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.